Hello, hello, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things food with your favorite chefs, food influencers, and Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a talented Ethiopian chef with a Michelin star-studded background with us to talk about the rituals of her childhood. She is a chef, an absolute delight to talk to. It is Fariel Abdullahi. Ariel, welcome to the podcast. So excited to be chatting with you today. I'm so excited. I, I've been looking forward to this. Very excited to talk to you. As I mentioned, you are a New York City-based chef. Your star is shining so bright right now in the food world. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But I actually wanted to start off the conversation by touching a bit on your background and some of your earlier experiences with food and cooking. You were born and raised in Ethiopia. So I was wondering if you could just kind of paint us a picture of what your childhood home your day-to-day life looked like back then? Yes. So I was born and raised in Addis Ababa, which is the capital city of Ethiopia. We're such a community-based country. So most of my childhood was spent with millions of people around, whether it was at home or we were visiting family. I just grew up with a huge community. I have to admit, I, I was stalking your Instagram earlier. I just love all of the the childhood memories that that you you know share with your followers, whether it's picking up a sheep every Friday on the way home <laughs> from school, your mom's Sunday coffee ceremony. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about some of these memories that tend to fill your mind when you are maybe feeling nostalgic? for home. So the way I grew up with food, we knew where everything came from. Like there was very little things that came in packages with expiration dates and stuff like that. Like I knew where my protein came from. So what I was talking about in my Instagram post is one of my favorite memories. And for me, this was normal because that's all I knew. Um, Every Friday after school, my brother would pick us up from school and we would stop by, it's called Bektara, which is like, uh, a sheep herding farm and we would pick a sheep uh, out of out of the herd and i like remember very vividly my brother would like walk around and look at look for like the best looking sheep and he'd like <laughs> look at their teeth because apparently that's the way to tell uh their age and like the older they are like the less tender the meat so he would pick a sheep and then it would get in the truck trunk of our car and then we would go home <laughs> wow and then i would watch that sheep get you know slaughtered for our uh, consumption for that week. And then, you know, my mom would go ahead and separate it based on like the dishes she would want to make. So, you know, like the oxtails for what, or like for soup, for kids and all that stuff. And then that's what we would eat for a week. And even our dairy, like we never bought milk from the grocery store. And this isn't for every single family in Ethiopia, this is just like my very um, own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we would get milk delivered very fresh, like two or three times a week, like in the morning. This kid would uh, deliver it and I would, it, it's raw milk, like fresh from the cow. And I remember touching it and it would still be warm. That Like that's how close we were to our food. And then my mom would boil it and then we would you know, drink our fresh milk before we went to school. I love hearing those stories. And I imagine this, you know, connectedness with the food that you kind of grew up with that really shaped your perspective on food throughout your life. How have those experiences really, you know, shaped your, your POV now? When you're that close to your source of food, there's just a huge amount of respect for it. There, there was no food waste for me growing up. When you've looked into the eyes of the animal that you're consuming, 
it gave up its life to nourish you. Mm-hmm. So you make sure nothing goes to waste. Like, and that's from every, every part of it to the skin. We make sure that we give it to somebody that can use it in one form or another. So absolutely zero food waste. Also like seasonality is such a huge thing for me because like in Ethiopia, we, we only have like a wet and a dry season. I remember like every rainy season coincided with that's when we grew corn. Mm. So every, every time it rains here, I crave corn <laughs> because when we were kids, like my mom would just put some corn and like roasted on charcoal. And, and like that association for me, every time it rains here, I'm like, where's my corn? I need, <laughs> I need it. So seasonality and also just no, no food waste. You have to respect where your food came from. And also like I knew most of the people that grew my food and I knew how much hard work went into it. That definitely gives you a lot of a different perspective than most people, especially here in the States. Do you remember the first thing that you ever learned to cook? I do. So I was actually best breastfed until I was two. So um, when she was trying to wean me off, I had this thing where I'd wake up in the middle of the night and uh, just ask for milk because I would be hungry. And she kind of like, tricked me with like a substitute. I had a sweet tooth when I was a kid. So she would bake a sponge cake and she would fill the middle with jam and then top it with like confectioner sugar. So a couple times a week she would bake it so that when I wake up in the middle of the night, I would have that to eat Mm. instead of me asking for milk. And every time she would bake that, I would be around because I I loved licking the batter. (laughs) But that just like continued into like, until I was like seven or eight. And at one point I'm like, I've seen you make this a billion times. Can I just do it myself? <laughs> and that was like the first thing. I'm like, I, I guess I bake now. I'm, yeah. I was like eight. Do you still make that that dish now? I no, I haven't since I left Ethiopia. I, I, I could use it though. A little little comfort food, you know, here yeah. and there. Yeah. What's one food you grew up with that you wish everybody could experience? Is it that one or is it something else? I, I'm pretty a lot of people have had sponge cake. I would say my mom's biryani, it's a it's a rice dish that you cook with a protein. And she usually makes it with either lamb or chicken. And then she serves it with crispy shallots and a jalapeno chutney. It's just a, the perfect dish. And mm. every time my friends used to come over, because it's very specific to my tribe. So every time my friends come over, they'd be like, yo, is your mom making biryani today? Like, we'll pull up. <laughs> we will come through. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you still have a lot of family there? Yeah. So my brother still lives there. He like took over the family business and, you know, he still uh, lives in our home. I go back frequently like to visit, but I also have a nonprofit with my friends. We build um, schools in rural parts of Ethiopia. So Mm. I try to make it back as often as I can. That's amazing. How did that get started? So my best friend, he moved to the States when he was very young. He hadn't been back home to Ethiopia and like the first time he went to visit was 20 years after he'd moved after he'd moved here. So he went back to his village and he went back to his elementary school. And when he came back, he was just so touched by how little they had. And he was telling me a story and he's like, I would at least love to build them a library. And I'm like, how much would it cost? And he's like, well, I mean, in American dollars, probably two thousand. And I'm like, let's do it. Let's build them a library. Yeah. And then so he started a nonprofit. And from there, we're like, let's just build entire schools like we could spend all money, spend all year raising funds and then build schools from there. So we've been doing it for the last seven years. And this year we're building our sixth school. Wow. Yeah. And we've expanded into like other projects, too. So in rural parts of Ethiopia, it's usually the boys that go to school because the girls spend a lot of time taking care of um 
just like home duties and most of them don't have access to water. So uh, it'll be a long trek to like go to the river. They'll spend a couple hours going to the river, getting water for whatever amount of water that they need for the family that whole day and then they'll come back. So we noticed that a lot of girls weren't attending school and that was the reason. So now we also build water pipelines to like individual homes. So that frees up the girls. They don't have that duty anymore. So they can go to school. And now there's schools that they could actually attend. So, yeah, that's incredible. I mean, what is what is that like for you to be able to give back to the community that you grew up in and and, and help some of those people there? It's very special. Um, the name of the foundation is Take Care of Home. And that's exactly what it feels like um, taking care of home, because I know every single opportunity that I've had being able to move to America and living out my dreams wouldn't have happened if I didn't have a good good education. That was something that my mom stressed from the very beginning. We all went to private schools, all my siblings and I. And I know if I had not been given that opportunity, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I've always had guilt from the brain drain. Like most countries like Ethiopia, one of the biggest things that happens is everybody that has the ability to get an education, they leave. Mm. So all the educated people usually leave the, leave the country. And that's not to say that you know, they don't uh, have amazing people back home. But I've always had that guilt. So this is one way of me ameliorating that guilt. because mm-hmm. I know I'm giving uh, the same opportunity that I had. Uh, well, let's talk about your move. Um, you, you moved to L.A. when you were 16 with the dream yeah. to become a doctor. So first of all, why, why medicine? This is my theory, right? Um, there's only three respectable careers you could have as an Ethiopian. And this is when I tell <laughs> you, it's like very standard across the board. Every single family this is, you have to be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer. That's it. Your parents raise you to be one of those three things. That's, <laughs> that's the only thing for every single family. And then I'm the youngest of six siblings. And of course, that's what my older siblings did. Uh, my brother's an immu- immuno-oncologist. He's married to a neurosurgeon. My sister's wow. a internal medicine and her husband's also an internist. So like, I had to follow those footsteps. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I guess that's what I'm going to do. Go to America and be a doctor. But I didn't. So what was the transition like for you initially when you first got to the States? There wasn't that much of a culture shock because I used to come here as a child. Like we used to spend summers uh, out here. So not much of a culture shock, just like minor hiccups. So I moved to the States when I was 16, but I was already in college at 16 because mm. we that's the age that we graduate uh, high school back home. So I already felt out of place in college. Like I was just like so young and like starry eyed. Up until that point, I my whole life I'd gone to a British school. So I didn't have a British accent because I, I grew up watching so many American movies, but I spoke British English. So there's so many words hmm. that don't exist here in America. <laughs> so I remember um, my very first day in college. So in British English, rubber is eraser. <laughs> so yeah. my very first day in college, I was 16 and I asked this kid next to me, I was like, hey, can I have a rubber? And he's like, yo, like, hey, everybody, can somebody help her? And I was like, they're so friendly in America. And this girl felt bad for me. She's like, sweetie, no, eraser. <laughs> that's that's what you, you want. You need an eraser. I'm like, what is that? What is an eraser? So things like that and like struggling in chemistry class. Like I remember getting like my tests back and I would get so many things wrong and I'd compare it to my friends and we had the same answer and I'm like aluminum. And she's like, that's not an element, it's aluminum. And my teacher kept like grading me wrong. And I'm like, but it's the same thing. So mm. small hiccups that I had to get, I had to like overcome and like learn American English versus British English. 
What was the moment that you were like, all right, you know, this isn't for me. I, I would rather do something else, a.k.a. go to culinary school. Yeah. So I'd always known that I wanted to cook for a living. Uh, like even when I left Ethiopia, that's what I wanted mm. to do. But, that, you know, um, I remember having a conversation with my mom and she's like, well, that's a hobby. Like you can do it after you're done saving people's lives. Um, so I did get my bachelor's in clinical child psychology. And I remember one day I went to UCLA to visit a child and adolescent, like mental and behavioral health unit. I was distraught for weeks because I'm such an empath and I tend to like take on other people's energies. And that just affected me in a way where I thought, you know, I don't think I could do this for a living. I could help from afar, but I just need to be in a kitchen after I got my bachelor's, I didn't apply for grad school. I secretly applied to culinary school. <laughs> and I was like, if I get accepted, it's a sign. I'm just, I'm just that's what I'm going to do. I mean, based on what you said, you know, previously that everybody has to do one of these three professions. What yeah. kind of support did you have from your family and friends when you finally revealed to them what your decision was? My friends were excited. They're like, good for you because I only applied to the CIA. I'm like, I'm going to go to the best culinary school or it's nothing at all. So they're very impressed. They're very excited. I mean, my siblings were cool. My mom, it took her a little bit to hop on board. But eventually, like when she started seeing all the cool things that I was doing, she's like, my daughter's a chef. Like, then, you know, <laughs> then she started showing off. <laughs> well, like you said, you applied to the CIA. And while you were yeah. waiting to hear if you got accepted... Yeah. You decided to hone these culinary skills by traveling to 18 different (laughs) countries, which is incredible. You sampled dishes, studied flavors from around the world. What were some of the your favorite places that you traveled to during that time? Oh, man. Travel is such a huge part of uh, like my my culinary experience. I'm at 44 countries right now. Wow. I plan on seeing every single country. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. That's amazing. Yeah. But that was like a very huge. I turned a corner during that trip because I did 18. I I was gone for three months and I'm like, let me just go to as many countries as I can. And it was just to eat. I just wanted to eat. Um, And that was really important for me because my palate had regressed so much after I moved to America because like have, uh, if you've had Ethiopian food, it's very, very flavorful and very mm-hmm. spicy. So that was my threshold for the first 16 years of my life. And I remember when I first moved to America, I only ever ate at school. My first intro to American food was cafeteria food at oh. community college. And I'm like, this is the worst thing. Like So bland, there's right? And no <laughs> there's no flavor. And way before Beyonce coined it, I used to walk around with hot sauce in my bag <laughs> because I just needed to impart flavor. But I really did regress because it turned me off of so much food. I'm like, I'm either going to eat at home or the only thing I liked eating was I remember the first time I had like bagel and cream cheese. I'm like, what is this? This is great. <laughs> so I was either Ethiopian food at home or bagel and cream cheese. And that was it. Uh, so when I traveled to these countries, it just opened up my palate up again. Um, I remember having paella for the first time in mm. Spain because Ethiopia is a landlocked country and seafood is not a thing. And I was like, what? What is bacalao? Like, what are you guys doing with these but like fit, like it, just, it was just so new to me and just so flavorful. So opening up my palate to brand new things that I never tried before, like even being in Turkey, having like lahmacun and dolma. And I'm like, what? Like you can spice meat with these warm spices? Like what? Like just so many brand new things that I never tried before. And like Mexico, 
and I, I'm sure I was a Mexican in my past life because I'm obsessed <laughs> with their food so much. But yeah, it opened up my palate to all these new things. And I'm like, okay, I could eat more than Ethiopian food and bagel and cream cheese. You were then accepted into, you attended CIA, and then after graduation, moved to Copenhagen and worked at Noma, which is, for anyone that doesn't know, widely considered one of the best, if not the best restaurants in the world, three Michelin stars. How did that opportunity come about and what was that experience like like for you fresh out of school so when I went to culinary school I most of the um most of my cohort they already had prior experience they'd either worked in a restaurant or something I was going in there with no experience so I needed to be on the fast track and I remember when we were close to graduation we were you know sitting in a circle and everybody's talking about okay after graduation I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that and they asked me and I'm like I want to work in the best restaurant in the world and they're like (laughs) what what and they're like, that's Noma in Copenhagen. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's where I'm going to go. Everybody's like, okay, good for you. Like not really <laughs> believing in me. And I was like, it, it, it makes the most sense. We're at the CIA. Like we have so many connections here. And I had a chef instructor uh, who was from Denmark and he had done a project with them for like two weeks. And I asked him to write me a, le- a letter of recommendation. And he wrote me one and, then, and I got accepted. Wow. And right after graduation, I was on a plane to, you know, Copenhagen. I'm like, you guys, you have to you have to believe in yourself, but also use <laughs> the opportunities that you have. What are you talking about? You're going to, you know, do internships and stuff I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going to Noma. So what was it like working in that kitchen? Uh, it was very intense. That was my first introduction to the long hours of working in a kitchen. Just like, you know, 14 to 16 hours on your feet all day. But I was so fortunate there. They have. It's it's changed since I've been because they've uh, changed locations, but they have three kitchens. They have the test kitchen. They have the prep kitchen, which is where most interns, you know, do like the tedious work, like picking lemon thyme with tweezers <laughs> for like six hours. And then there's a production kitchen downstairs wh- where they do all the cooking. Depending on your own attitude and experience, that kind of that determines where you work. But most interns spend a lot of time in the prep kitchen. And I remember after a month getting to work downstairs in the production kitchen, and I was so excited. And I just got to do so many cool things. Like we cooked at the Matt Symposium. And I was like fresh out of culinary school. There are all these chefs that were attending the Matt Symposium that I spent, you know, I like reading about them in textbooks, like Alan Ducas, Alan Passad, like just so many chefs that are now eating and I'm getting to cook for them. And it was just like such a huge blessing. And I, re- I remember specifically that week was so stressful because like they spend months planning for this event and everything has to be perfect. So for that week, all interns were upstairs. And I remember, you know, it was just like picking my lemon time and <laughs> production was about to start. And Renee Redzepi came upstairs and he's like, why are you not downstairs? And I'm like, me? Yes, chef. Like just like ran downstairs. And I was like one of only two interns that was cooking for all these chefs at the Matt Symposium, I'm like, I, I'm putting my head down and doing the work. I'm so happy to be here. Wow, that sounds like an incredible experience. I mean, I don't think we have a lot of guests on here with you know a knowledge of Scandinavian cuisine. So I would love to hear yeah. even just a little bit more about kind of some of the hallmarks of dishes in Denmark and their approach to dining. In Denmark, they have something called the Law of Yenta. And it's, it's kind of like a social construct where you should be very content with the bare minimum. So you shouldn't try to outdo your community and have like these huge ambitions. And I think that's very much portrayed in their food. A lot of things are very simple and very basic. Denmark is a very cold country. So 
They have a lot of dishes with potatoes, like things you're able to grow in cold countries. So they have a lot of dishes with potatoes and like brassicas, a lot of cabbage. And uh, most of their staple food kind of stuck around from pre-industrial revolution times where things were born out of necessity. So like a lot of their food for preservation, like most of their meats are smoked or cured or brined, pickled, fermented. And mm. it's just, they have a huge coastline, so there's a lot of seafood. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't had any Scandinavian food before I moved there. So, you know, the, like a very typical lunch for them would be an open sandwich. So they do like a pickled herring on rye bread. It's called smorgbord. Mm. Pretty sure I never <laughs> learned how to pronounce it very properly. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then um, they're also very communal. So like dinner, they would eat. They have a lot of pork. Most of their uh, dishes are pork. I loved I loved eating there a lot. How long did you stay there and what kind of motivated you to come back to the States? Um, I was there for about six months and I would have, you know, like stayed and continued to work there. But at the time I was in America on a green card and you're not allowed to be gone more than six months at a time. So Mm -hmm. it it required me to come back every six months and that just like wouldn't have worked (laughs) I know a few years ago, you you decided to kind of take a step away from working in restaurants. You took a, mm-hmm. a year off to really prioritize your your mental health, your physical well-being. Mm-hmm. What was that year off like for you? Um, amazing, because up until that point, I'd spent eight years in a kitchen. And I always tell people who don't have restaurant experience, you age in dog years. Because <laughs> like if you work eight hours, we call that part time. Like that's, that's a, that's a that's a half shift. Yeah. Um, but standing on your feet all day can like take such a toll on you. And like the intensity of the kitchen can take such a mental uh, uh, toll on your mental health. And I remember starting to have back problems before I hit 30. And I went to the doctor, um, got an MRI. And she's like, yeah, you actually have arthritis in your lower back and your knees. And you have carpal tunnel in both your wrists, cubital wow. tunnel in your left elbow. And I'm like, what? This doesn't make sense. I'm not 50. And she's like, well, yeah, it's it's, it depends on like how much you use it. Like athletes get arthritis in their 20s. I just felt like I was deteriorating. So I took a year off and I just rested. Like the first couple of months were very hard because I was like so used to being like, go, go, go. And I'd wake up and there was nothing to do. And it would like drive me crazy. I'd have so much anxiety. But then I was like, just slow down, spend time with your family. Like you've missed so many important milestones that for your family, like weddings, graduations, birthdays, funerals. So I spent the entire year just making up for that. How do you continue now that that year is over to still focus on your mental health and really advocate the same for others? I feel like people don't talk about mental health enough. So if you talk to me for five minutes, it'll come up in conversation. (laughs) I just live by the mantra, like, if it doesn't bring me peace, then it's not part of my journey. No matter who it is that I'm talking to, I, I find a way to bring it up in conversation and just making sure people prioritize that. How do you think that that time off prepared you for the the phase in life that you currently are in, where you're in the industry, you're consulting, you're doing incredible things like cooking at the Met Gala last year. How did, how did that time off really prepare you for the time you're in now? That time off really, I, I definitely gained a lot of mental stamina. Um, not that I didn't have it before, but there was like a lot of you know, like the classic analogy of the duck, like the, it looks so calm on the surface, but underneath it's like paddling viciously away. That's how I was before. Um, but after my year off, like I do everything with intention. Um, you know, even during the Met Gala, like I thought 
I like I would have been way too scared to do something that big. But, you know, after the year, like learning how to live in the present and just taking things one at a time, it prepared me to take on much bigger challenges. Coming up, Theriot tells us how she found out she was invited to cook at last year's Met Gala. So stick around. I want to hear more about the Met Gala because I I saw that you actually thought the invite was was a prank initially. Is that true? (laughs) So my first uh, invitation was I got a call from Marcus Samuelson and uh, I, you know, I had already been working with him at this point. And he was like, it was it wasn't. It was something that was going to happen. Like, I, I think he called me like eight months before the Met Gala. And he said, hey, w- hey, would you be interested in doing it? And I was like, duh. <laughs> and that was the only conversation that we had had. And then the next thing is like a few months before the Met, I got an email from Anna Wintour. And wow. there was no su- there was no subject. So I was just like scrolling through my email and I was like, OK, like that should be in spam. So I wasn't even going to read it. I wasn't even going to read it. I just like scrolled past it. Then I was like, wait a second, Anna, the Miguel. Oh, my God. And I clicked on it. And it was like her asking me personally, like to go wow. through the Miguel. And I was like, thank God I opened that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, what was that? What was that experience like that process of, you know, deciding, you know, what you're going to cook and, and how you're going to represent yourself at that? like such a prestigious event. Oh my gosh. Like the food part was the easiest part because (laughs) we just had to like provide a menu and submit our recipes. The fact that we didn't actually have to be in the kitchen, but we were attending as guests Mm -hmm. and do the red carpet. I'm like, what? (laughs) Like I spent most of my life in chef, uh, like chef whites and dance goes. I'm not like a very fashionable person per se. Like I don't, I'm not in that industry. So I was, I was just like very stressed out. So I got a stylist. Well, uh, let's talk about that red carpet look because it was stunning. Oh, so beautiful. Could you talk Thank us through you. just the inspiration for your for your look and, and what it was like to actually walk the red carpet in that dress? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So the first meeting that I had with my stylist, she is so amazing. You need a stylist. Like I, I tagged her in my Instagram need to look her up. Her name's Gifty, but she was like, we just want you to be comfortable. Like, what's your vision? And I'm like, I literally have no vision. I don't know anything about fashion. All I want to, all I want, all I need is to be super comfortable (laughs) and just look fly. Um, And I asked, I was like, would it be appropriate? Like the village that I'm from in Ethiopia, we have a gold headpiece that we wear for very special occasions. And I was like, would it be appropriate to wear that? I'm like, that's the only thing I want to wear. I don't like you can totally determine like the dress and all that stuff. But that's the only thing that I know that I would absolutely love. But can I wear it to the Met? And she was like, girl, we're going to design a dress. We're going to design a dress around that headpiece. That's going Uh. to be the main thing. So, um, yeah, she reached out to a couple of designers and um, uh, we got this guy, Kendrell White. He made me this beautiful beautiful dress like he designed it like around my headpiece that was my first experience being in the like public eye and it was at the Met Gala with (laughs) millions of paparazzi like walking the red carpet when I tell you I was so comfortable and calm and I wasn't nervous at all I was just so excited to be there so walking up those stairs I was like all right well this section, you're going to get my photo first. Like, I was very, like, <laughs> like you know, because the paparazzi are, like, yelling, like, turn this way. Like, we want a photo. 
And I'm like, no, no, no. Very calm. Wait very your calm. turn. Yeah. <laughs> Wait your turn. Excuse me, ma'am. Can you fix my dress? Thank you. <laughs> uh, but it was so fun. I do have a very embarrassing story. Oh, let's hear it. So I, um, you know, like it, it was a lot of the roads get, getting to the Met were like blocked off. So I'm like, just drop me off here. I'm, I'm going to walk. So I walked like two blocks and I ended up being <laughs> wow. a little bit late. And by the time I got there, all the other chefs had already met Anna. They had done their introduction, said their thank yous and all that stuff. So by the time I got there, Marcus was like, you, you just have to find the time. Like there was like so many other people talking to her and he's like, you just have to find a good opportunity and, you know, make sure you go introduce yourself. Um, so I was like nervously waiting for my moment to talk to Anna and thank her for this amazing opportunity. And she was just, she just had a crowd around her the whole time. And then I look over at one moment and there's only two people standing with her and I'm like, this is it. I'm going in. So I, you know, walked up to her and before I could say anything, there's, one of the men standing next to her immediately was like, you look stunning. Like, wow, this is such an amazing look. And I was like, thank you. Not really like engaging because I'm like so nervous trying to talk to Anna. And I'm trying to talk to like Mrs. Winter. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And then the man goes, I'm Tom. Nice to meet you. And I'm like, great, Tom. Um, So (laughs) Anna, thank you so much for this opportunity. Right. So then event is over and then a month later i'm at a dinner table with marcus and a few of his friends and they're asking me about my experience at the met and he was like well i'll tell you this she impressed the heck out of tom ford oh wow (laughs) i was like when did i impress tom ford and he's like you met him he's literally the first person that you talk to (laughs) oh my gosh that's hilarious that's how uninvolved i am in the fashion world i don't know what anyone looks like i I wouldn't know either (laughs) and i was my shoes were tom ford oh my god it was when he said that and i realized that was my interaction with tom ford i'm like okay i need i I need to do better (laughs) (laughs) well you know what next time you meet Tom Ford, you'll have a great story to, to uh, tell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, aside from Tom Ford, since you didn't even know who he was, were there any um, celebrities that had you like starstruck at that event? I wouldn't say starstruck, but there's, you know, I will say starstruck. Um, Cynthia Erivo. I'm such a huge fan of hers. It was just like such a fun experience because I was excited to be talking to everyone. And like people that I look up to were giving me compliments like... You know, like Mary J. Blige was like, girl, what is that headpiece? Like, you, you look amazing. Yara Shahidi, like, she was like, I noticed you from across the room. I'm like, are they talking to me? Like, you know what I mean? I'm like, they were just like so nice and everyone's complimenting me. And I'm like, wow, the, this is my life right now. But yeah, I was just very excited to be there. Well, if anyone's seen the photos from from that event, I, I I'm not surprised. So if you go on go on her Instagram and see it because it is it is stunning for sure. Thank you, thank you. And as you mentioned, uh, this opportunity came about through your mentor and obviously a Food Network favorite, Marcus Samuelson, who is also from Ethiopia. How did you guys initially meet? <laughs> so the first time we met, um, I was eating at Red Rooster. And uh, I was sitting with a friend who is also in the industry. So Marcus had stopped by the table and we introduced ourselves, but it was very brief. And then several years later, Marcus and I ended up being in, featured in, a, in the same cookbook called The Place at the Table. 
and it features the nation's top 40 foreign-born chefs. And I think that kind of put me on his radar and he ended up reaching out and wanted to know if, you know, like if I, if, if I wanted to work with him and I was like, duh, again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I've done some consulting for him and done a bunch of cool projects. We opened a restaurant um, in Bahamar. So I was in, I spent Somewhere in the Bahamas doing that, you know, like Met Gala, um, help him out with a, a lot of TV appearances. So just really, really cool stuff. What have you been able to learn from Marcus as a mentor? The biggest thing I've learned from him, and honestly, it's the biggest gift he's given me. So as a Black woman, an immigrant, a Muslim, like young, having leadership positions in the kitchen every day you're sort of reminded of how much that space is not built for you. Uh, So that's always been a huge struggle for me being in the industry. And he just taught me to believe in myself. Like there's, there's no room for self doubt. You're here because you've earned your spot. Mm -hmm. So much less time doubting yourself and a lot more time believing in yourself. So that's the biggest thing I've learned from him. Yeah, no, that's huge. I think that's, yeah. you know, a good reminder for everybody for sure. Um, you mentioned that you helped him open that restaurant uh, mm-hmm. at Bahamar. After that experience, mm-hmm. what's important to you when you're laying the the foundation for a new restaurant? So the most important thing when you're opening the restaurant is knowing that you're setting the tone and the trajectory for how successful that restaurant is going to be. So if you're starting off at 100%, you know, you're going to get to like 50 to 75. That'll be like the operating standards. So you got to go in full force. So the most important thing is like setting the standards. So I always go in with 200%. (laughs) 200%. Setting the culture is super important because when you're working in a kitchen, most people that work in kitchens, we spend more time with each other than we do with our families. So... (laughs) I listen, I'm notorious for like, I'm like no grumpiness in my kitchen. Like everybody needs, if you're in a bad mood, just, you know, and I always tell them, I always have a phrase. I'm like, listen, there's no poopy diapers in this kitchen, no (laughs) cry babies. So, um, just making sure everybody's super respectful, but happy, like just be happy to come to work. Like how blessed are we to experience this amazing job together? So standard and culture for sure. Yeah. No, I think that's super important. Well, this is the Food Network Obsessed podcast. So of course, we have to chat a little bit about Food Network. What are some of your favorite Food Network shows to watch? Um, I'm an Iron Chef junkie. I I love (laughs) Iron Chef so much. Like the the OG Iron Chef? The OG Iron Chef. That was like one of the first things I started watching when I moved to America. I was hooked on Iron Chef America. And then um, anything Bobby Flay is in, like... He's incredible. <laughs> he's, he's awesome. I'm like, I remember moving to America, like 16 years old. I'm like, I think this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there a Food Network chef that you would like to cook with, perhaps? Him, probably. Yeah, Bobby yeah. Flay. Bobby yeah. Flay. That um, would be so awesome. If you were on a Food Network competition show, which one do you think you would do well on? The first thing that pops in my head, but I'm also not going to lie to myself or your audience. I Like my style of cook, like I don't know how they do it when they go on competition shows because my style of cooking is like very much like I need to think through things and like none of this. Fly. So I, I don't think I would do very well in a competition yeah. show. I'm not <laughs> going to lie. However, if it was like competing 
like if it was eating, if that was the competition, yeah, they would just have to build a new show around me where I'm like eating as my competition. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is the craziest thing she can eat? What? Yeah. Is, like, how fast? I don't know. Whatever it is, like, I yeah, I could do that. <laughs> Instead of man versus food, it'll be woman versus food. <laughs> there you go. There you go. You would watch that, wouldn't you? I would 100% watch that for sure. <laughs> um, aside from that, what what is next for you? Um. So I'm moving back to New York City in two days. I'm right now packing up my life in LA. Wow. Um, to open up Mark. Marcus's new restaurant, which I can't say too much about, but I will tell you that we're working on the menu and okay, it's going to be great. Okay. Well, we will yeah. look forward to more news about that. Well, Fariel, it has been so lovely chatting with you. Uh, we are going to wrap things up with a little rapid fire round. And then we have one final question for you here on Food Network Obsessed. All right. Ready? Yeah. Morning ritual. All right. I like to stay in bed for an hour listening to a podcast and okay. then I and then I play Wordle and that kind of sets the tone <laughs> how successful my day is going to be. Okay. Does it ruin your day if you if you can't get the Wordle? Yeah. So I'm like Wordle queen. Uh, my sisters hate me because I usually get it in under a minute. Wow. But the days that doesn't happen, I'm just in a funk all day. I'm like, I'm not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Favorite vacation spot? Anywhere mountainous. I'm a mountain. I'm, I think I'm a snow leopard in my past life because I love mountains. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you have to you have to visit Montana. That's where I'm from. At some point, I would love it. <laughs> uh, one thing on your bucket list. I've pretty much done everything, but I'm still not certified for scuba diving. So okay. I have to get my scuba certification. And you got to check off all the countries too, I guess. That yes, <laughs> like what is it? 150 left to go. That's it. <laughs> all right. Favorite comfort food. Dark chocolate. Song you can't stop listening to. Um, I'm kind of on a Doja Cat kick right now. I can't stop listening nice. to her. Yeah. And I just watched her at Coachella and I'm like, she's such a great performer. So that's awesome. Person you would most like to have dinner with. I'm going to cheat and say the Obamas. I know it's yeah. people, but no, that's I, that's both on my list as well. Yeah, there you I go. Always, <laughs> I always say that favorite late night snack. Um, I don't really snack late at night, but the few times that I do, it's always a craving for In-N-Out. Okay, fair. So I'll go out for a drive <laughs> at 1 a.m. and, you know, get the number two with onions. Animal fries, vanilla yes. shake. Yep. Uh, best advice you've ever received? Don't ignore your intuition. All right. So our last question, not rapid fire. You can take as much time on this as you want. Uh, we ask everybody the same question, and that is what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So we want to hear your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner, dessert, if you like dessert. There are no rules. So you can travel, time travel, spend as much money as you want. Anybody can cook these meals for you. You can cook them. Um, it's, it's your day. Uh, breakfast, I would start off at Russ and Daughters mm. for uh, a little uh, lox bread. It's my favorite favorite thing to eat. Got to go then, back uh, to your yeah your bagel. Yeah, my bagel. Your, I'm telling you, back like, to your that's roots. My favorite thing in America. I'm like bagels <laughs> and cream cheese. Okay, yeah. So it would definitely be um, that and uh, caviar flight because I'm a sucker for caviar. Mm. Then I would have brunch. Obviously, dim sum. Oh yes, I'm not gonna get full from like bagels and caviar. <laughs> uh, so dim sum. I love me some dim sum. And then uh, I would have a late lunch. It would have to be Ethiopian food. I would do a vegetarian combo. Uh, my favorite is misir, which is a lentil stew. 
and kitfo, which is a beef tartare. You know what? We're not getting full, right? So like, no. let's throw in my mom's biryani too. Yes, absolutely. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then for dinner, I would go to Shuko Omakase. Let's throw in a snack between because okay. you don't get full off this day. Like, I just have to do it. Let's go to Calories Mexico. don't count. Calories, Calories don't count don't on this count. day. Calories don't count. We don't have a gala dress to fit into anymore. So, <laughs> yeah. I like, we're going to sneak in something between uh, lunch and dinner. Okay. We're going to go to Mexico and have some tacos. Some Amazing. Ta- yeah, leng- yeah, it's a lengua. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love okay. some tongue tacos. All right. And anything for dessert or are you, are you done after sushi? Gosh, yeah, I don't really have a sweet tooth, but I am on like an ice cream kick right now. There's a place here, salt and straw, where yeah. you have like all these funky flavors. And I had something the other day. It was like pear and blue cheese. And oh, my friends yeah. were like, uh, no. And I'm like, <laughs> you don't have to eat it, but I am. I think I had, I think one time I went, they had like, I want to say it was bone marrow or f- and cherries or something like that. <laughs> I would eat that. Like It was delicious. It was so what, good. I know. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I don't have a sweet tooth, but I will eat salt and straw every day. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time. We are so looking forward to seeing what comes next as your star continues to, to rise in the food world. But so much fun chatting with you and hearing all your stories. Such a joy to get to know Ferial and learn more about her roots and the traditions that have shaped her as a person and a chef. I know there is a very bright future ahead for her. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 